0: I want to finish off tonight our final installment of our series, Relationship Mechanics. I hope you've been blessed by it. I hope it challenged you, whether you're a Christian or whether you're just exploring this whole thing of spirituality or just maybe you're visiting with us uh, today or you've been visiting with us the past few weeks. I hope it challenged you. I hope it helped you to realize that the God of Christianity is not a God that intends for people to have a vertical relationship with Him and say, as long as me and you are fine, then stuff the rest. That's not the God that we know. That is not a God or a brand that took Jesus from heaven to earth to live a sinless life, to die on a cross, to go in the grave and rise up again to give you a life for you and God to be good together and your family and your neighbors and your friends are struggling and you don't care about them. It's not the type of Christianity where it says, you know, God, it changes your eternity, but he leaves you where you are on earth. That is not the Christianity that we know. The type of life that Jesus lived and died for you and I to live is a type of life that impacts the very person, the very identity of who we are so that we can grow in the way we relate to people so that people can see Jesus through us. Because believe it or not, the type of Christianity some of our Western constructions have put together is a genie God. It's a God that can you put in a pack pocket, a God that you can say, I want this. He's a vending machine. I want money. I want a job. I want health. I want healing. I want, you know, whatever you want. He's not a vending machine God. He's a God that wants to change the way we are and to confront the mistakes and flaws that we have acquired. In our lives over many years and I'm not embarrassed to say that this is an area of my least competence relationship I've spent many many years preaching and I have never spent a whole series that I personally preached on relationships because I felt I was hypocrite I didn't have what it takes to come from an area of strength and say look at me and imitate me but I believe this year more than any other year that I can say come alongside me because we learn together to change the way we behave to learn together how we better relate to other people to learn together how we can reflect Jesus in a way that helps people around us to smell him and touch him and relate to him and if you're not a Christian I am so glad you're here because you get to see the real brand of Christianity that Jesus came to give his friends and followers throughout the centuries. And uh, throughout this series, we spoke about relationships are like cars. They are enjoyable when you have them working well. They can be exhausting when, you, when they don't work well. They can take, suck the life out of you when you've got conflict, when you've got uh, troubles in friendships or at work or in your family or predominantly particularly in your intimate and romantic relationships. They're hard to live with. And it seems like sometimes we feel that relationships are unpredictable. We don't know how they work. So we guess our way through them, and, and we we'll try to manufacture a way to better relate with other people. And when it doesn't work, we just leave one relationship and get to another relationship, hoping the other relationship is just merely going to be better than ever. And last week, we talked about the different stages or gears in the, in the transmission system that relationships go through. Does anybody remember what the F refers to? Forming, yes? What does S refer to? A storming. So there's a couple of people were awake last week. Praise Jesus for them. Okay. Uh, What about the N? Norming. Yes. So that's when we put our expectations together. And P refers to? Performing. And the A refers to? Yes. Adjourning or reversing where people jump ships, whether the, 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 the task has been finished or whether they feel sick of a relationship because of the storming. And I promised you last week we'll talk about how do we deal with the storming in our lives. How do we deal with situations when our relational pattern and our differences cause us to have potentially personality clashes or preference clashes or differing of opinions and voicing opinions and arguments and disagreements and and the like. Because no matter what, eventually our relationships progress forward and we notice that things aren't quite what we expected them to be. In the forming stage, everybody's getting along with others. We haven't really shown our true colors. We're really uh, walking on eggshells, if you like, and we're pretending to be the most lovable people in the world and the people around us, the most lovable people in the world. But sometimes our expectations fail us. And disagreements come and based on your upbringing, you either thrive and push through the storming stage or you get stuck and you want to run for your life. Let me tell you something. If you're a follower of Jesus, only if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not imposing on people that don't follow Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus and you are committed to a relationship of partnership at home, if you're married, regardless how it feels, if there is no abuse and if there's no affairs, you have no option but to work through your storming. You can't just press the reverse button. The sad thing, we had a, a person that we know very well went to a counseling center, a, a Christian counseling center just several weeks ago, and she's got some problems in her marriage. And they they advising her, Christian counselors, Advising her that it's okay to leave if, it, if you don't feel like a princess. If you're not being treated like a princess, you can move on. What type of Christianity is this? Just because we want to tolerate and just because we be, want to be well known and respected in the world, that we succumb to the cultural norms around us. The scripture speaks very clearly about your commitment in marriage to the person that you're with. We are not in a popularity contest. I'm not here, and nobody that is going to serve Jesus is going to be here in a counseling center or in any pastoral environment to pat you on the back. Things get tough, absolutely. But you need to commit to the covenant of Jesus that you have. Just because things are tough, it doesn't give you the right. To ignore the covenant that God has given you. If you're a non-Christian, that is absolutely fine. You go ahead and do what it feels comfortable for you. But God's command to us is that love is selfless. Love is not about being treated as a princess. I grew in an environment, I've been married for 23 years, and now Susie wasn't seven when we got married. But when I got married, the only observation I've had of a family, because we didn't have marriage preparation back then, but the only preparation I had was observing my dad and mom. And my mom and dad were really involved in the ministry. They were committed to one another and committed to the ministry, but they didn't have a lot of time together. But I didn't see them argue or fight publicly at any stage. So somehow I believed that if you got married and you signed the paperwork, somehow miraculously, God takes away every argument and every problem that you may ever encounter. So you can imagine what it was like when in the first few years of our marriage, it was tough. And we disagreed about different things, and we would have a fight, a sharp disagreement, and I'm thinking, Susie, being a, a, a rather healthy individual because of her upbringing, she would say, Let's talk about it and move on. It's like, No way. What do you mean we're going to talk about it and just move on? I'm going to analyze every conversation we had for the past three days before we came to that agreement so I can figure out what's your motivation, what you're trying to get at, what is it that really brought us down. You know, I was angry. I was, I, I, and, and when I mean I needed time. I didn't need half an hour, I didn't need a coffee, I mean I needed a day or two to think through it. And I'll be miserable. And she would say, what can we just talk about? What do you mean talk about? I need to think about it first. You know, I need to assess the thing first. Why? Deep inside I didn't know that, but deep inside I wanted to make it so hard for us to fight again. You know why? Because I did not know how to deal with the negative emotions that that brought about. So the only way I could manufacture and control the outcome is to make it so miserable for her and so miserable for me, so before we fight the next time, we think about it twice. Do you think it works? Imagine if we can activate our relational suspension. Imagine if what we experience on the outside is not so impacted by every bump on the road relation. You see, the function of suspension in cars is to almost carry the weight of the car and to protect us from feeling the impact of every external changes on the road and and every bump. Because suspension systems support the road holding and the right quality. It doesn't mean you change the road. It doesn't mean you you look at your map and see which roads don't have any bumps and and that's the road I'm going to travel on. It's discovering that regardless of what the road brings your way, you're going to push through. And you're not going to feel collapsing at the end of every bump. Because you and I know what it's like to go up and down emotionally based on the challenges that we face externally in our relationships. Are you like me where you feel every bump on the road? Do you feel so deeply affected by exterior relational circumstances that it clouds your emotions even for a long time? The reality that you and I witness is that no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we pray we encounter people in different relational spheres who may be challenging because they have different motivational drives based on their engine engine and relational pattern interacting with people of all different relational patterns can produce in us six negative emotions one anger two fear three, sadness, four, disgust, five, shame, and six, hopeless despair. And people who have the suspension system to ride these negative emotions, as well as help others recover, are rarely overwhelmed by the situations they face on the road. What science has discovered is that when we feel that people do not want to be with us, that's when tension arises. Our body, believe it or not, our body releases cortisol, that's a stress hormone, we crumble because of that. It destroys, it eats up our nervous system. It stays in our bodies for 24 hours if we focus on a negative emotions for six minutes. If you focus on any of these negative emotions for six minutes, it stays in your body for 24 long hours. Relating to different types of people, And regulating the emotion they provoke in us may require so much energy, stamina, and skills. Yet once we find the capacity to strengthen our relational suspension system and shock absorbers, we can move forward in life because you and I know we probably cannot fix all the roads that we would ever travel on and we cannot control who we interact with throughout our lives. But what if external conflicts and challenges cannot be eliminated, but you can master a way to remain sane, relational, and experience peace on a journey. So how do we figure out the way to write in a way that helps us act in the same manner? Manner at bumps or not. I want to share with you a, a little story, a little narrative of someone who encountered negative emotions, encountered difficulties, encountered accusations from a group of Christians, and he learned how to move forward in life despite of the conflict. His name is Paul, and you know of him as the Apostle Paul, who brought Christianity, the brand of Christianity, to the Gentile world. He commenced his second missionary journey around 49 A.D., Accompanied by Silvanus and Timothy, Paul arrived and founded the Church of God in Corinth around 50-51 to AD. Paul focused on the provisional capital Corinth, as you can see there, as a strategic center from which the gospel is spread to surrounding villages, cities, and many parts of the Mediterranean world. Hence, Paul remained there for 18 years long month and he had invested so much in this church then scholars tell us that he wrote three to five letters to this church the first is known as the lost letter we don't know what it is but we know that there is reference to it in first corinthians so that's the second letter between first corinthians and and second corinthians he had a painful visit He went to to, to the church there and there's apparently been a particular person who was in conflict with Paul. We don't know much about that person, but most scholars tell us uh, that he had a confrontation with Paul and he helped other people to get offside with Paul. So he had a minority of group of, of, of Corinthians who sided against Paul and became disaffectionate towards Paul and he was almost like a a ringleader who was attracting their loyalty. That painful visit occurred in spring 55 AD. After this, prompted by the confrontation and the conflict that took place, Paul sent him what we know as the painful letter. The painful letter may have grieved the church. In fact, we know it did. It provoked the repentance because it confronted their sin and compelled them to discipline the person involved in the conflict. Then we come to 2 Corinthians that was written in summer of 55 AD in response to criticisms that Paul received for not visiting Corinth and to also defend his apostleship. Can you believe that? Paul, who founded the church, now the church, because of different conflicts, saying, we don't think he's an apostle. Fancy that. I wonder what they will be doing when he's with them in heaven. So, uh, Paul, we weren't 100% sure you were the real deal, bro. The Corinthians were starting to accuse Paul of deception, carelessness, indifference, or even manipulation, because he promised to visit them again Yet he changed his mind. It's like what you do when conflict arises. You know, they were saying, okay, just because we have a conflict, it doesn't mean that you turn your back on us, give us the, the, the cold shoulder and decide you're not going to come and visit us. Paul responded to their misunderstanding and wrong expectations and accusations in that paragraph, uh, the, you know, the, the beginning of that response in the paragraph that we'll read today. He wrote the second letter to say, let's sort this out together. And I believe Paul's principles will assist you and assist me in helping deal with conflict and the storming stage when they arise. You ready? First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and let's read from verse 23. It says, I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it's by faith you stand firm. So I made, it, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is it left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I should not be distressed, by those who ought to make me rejoice, I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. You see, the words that are being used over and over and over in this particular passage is Paul's emotions and the people's emotions associated with him. And that's potentially the first thing that in times of storming, we need to do. We need to validate emotions. First, Paul clarifies that his decision not to visit the church of Corinth was motivated by, by, by his uh, intent to maintain a good relationship with them, to absorb the tension and the bumps on the road. Paul didn't want to pay them another painful visit. He wanted to make sure that the relationship was fueled by joy. Glad to be together even when one or two of us have negative emotion. This challenging situation originated from an unnamed man in chapter 2. It's likely that this person, some people say, that he committed some sort of, a, of, a, of an immoral act, but it is likely that it was a personal attack on Paul. And to restore the relationship, Paul begins by validating the emotions experienced by all parties. Not just by him, not just by them, but by all parties. Examine the emotions that Paul acknowledges about the whole ordeal. He starts by validating their emotion, then acknowledges his own. You see, he says, I grieved you, Uh, make me glad, I grieve, distress and rejoice. It's all emotive words. But at the end, Paul says that the emotions now need to take, even though there may be grief and distress, could take us together into another era, into another stage, where we can be together even though one or two of us are experiencing grief and distress. You know, when we walk together, it doesn't mean everybody is happy. You see, that's the stuff that upsets me in relationships or, or particularly in families. We think we can only be together if all of us are happy. That's in la-la land only. We can have grief. We can have difficulties. We can have disagreements. That is absolutely okay as long as we say we're glad to be together in this painful journey. We're going to stick together. We're going to support one another because it's not about me. It's about selfish living because that's what Jesus would have done. It's sad at times when people come and, and ask for prayer. And a prayer is about somebody that's annoying them and they want God to punish that person. It's like, hang on a second. He is still a loving God. He still cares about the both of you. And what he wants to say is, yes, I acknowledge the emotions and the grief and the frustration. I do not want to pretend that it doesn't exist, but I want to support you through the journey. We genuinely go to the person or the people involved with us. The people that may have been upset, the people who are, have upset us, whatever it may be. The disagreements or the, or the conflict or whatever that has occurred. And we reach to the problem that they have, not the problem that they, you wish they have. You see how sometimes somebody says to us, you know, I have a problem with such and such. No, 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 no. It's not that big, you know. You should really feel that way. That's not validation. That's manipulation. If they feel that way, it's okay. You need to acknowledge what they feel. If you feel a certain way, you deserve to be acknowledged for that emotion. It doesn't make it right, it doesn't make it wrong. It's just an emotion. And you see, some of the times we are embarrassed by our emotions. We're embarrassed to validate our own emotions. If you feel sad, if you feel ashamed, if you feel guilty, if you feel distressed, you say, No, 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 I I, I can't think that way. You, You know what we usually do? We go to the emotion that we're most comfortable with dealing. We go to the, you know, you might feel hopeless, but you go to anger. Why? Because anger is an emotion that you've learned how to deal with. You you might feel embarrassed, uh, but the sadness is the emotion that provokes other people's sympathy towards you, so you go to sadness, but that's not the right emotion that you're experiencing. That's a fabricated emotion that you're experiencing. And and sometimes we upset somebody, but rather than deal with that shame of upsetting somebody or hurting somebody, we, we, we fight and revenge because we can deal with those emotions. But the reality is we need to acknowledge the real emotions. We need to acknowledge their feelings and emotions that they have genuinely. Then communicate our own emotions. You can't be in a relationship where for the sake of making sure everybody is happy, that you don't communicate your emotions. It's like if I say what I really feel, they might not like me. You're suppressed you got to communicate your emotions in the politest and the most courteous way. But you're allowed to communicate it because let me tell you something, the emotion is there, and if you're not going to deal with it, it's going to color the way you see the person in the future. I promise you it will. So Paul doesn't fuss around and say, I'm so sorry you misunderstood me. Corinthians, I made a mistake. I didn't really come. hey, 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 I want to tell you why. We've got grief between us. And if I came to you back then, there might have been some extra grief produced in the relationship. You're grieved, I'm grieved, but hey, we want to arrive to joy. We want to walk together, glad to be together, even though we have some problems to deal with. Then communicate your feelings and assure them that regardless of the emotions present, present, you choose to journey together and to progress towards a better future. That's what Paul did. The first thing is validate emotion. The second thing Paul did here in verse 4, it says, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart. That's the letter that he wrote to them previously. And with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So he's clarifying to them why he wrote that. He's clarifying to them the reason for the miscommunication that they've had. In fact, in the the message paraphrasing, In in, in chapter 1, it it says that I I, I want to let you know and I want to promise before God that the reason why I wasn't able to come to you is not because of indifference or manipulation. He had to clarify the facts. You know, just because you think this way, it doesn't mean validating your emotion means I have to validate your perceptions or your evaluation or your assessment of me. I need to clarify my point of view. I also want to give you another point of view. Not only that, but you can also ask people to clarify their point of view. You don't have to agree with everything people say because God has given us a brain to assess and to discern. But allow other people to share their perceptions and you're allowed to clarify your perception as well. You're allowed to share what you really, really think, whether they accept it or not. You see, uh, the whole situation started with Paul recognizing that there is a conflict. That that guy, whoever this guy, unnamed guy was, he's having a dig at Paul. And he was being a a ringleader that is causing other people in the church to side against Paul. And Paul addressed that. Face on, he clarified the facts. He sent him a letter, even though it was a painful letter. It follows a a visit of sorrow, but that didn't stop him from sending him a letter that according to chapter 7 and verse 8, that it seemed to hurt them for a while. But that wasn't the long-term intention. The letter may have led to the majority of the church to reprimand and possibly even exclude that particular person from the fellowship for a little bit. There may have been a minority that sided with with that man based on on the reprimand and, and the punishment. He now explains, Paul now explains that it wasn't called facts. He poured his heart out in his communication to them. It was a letter covered by love and affection, but also a letter that spoke the truth. We don't for sure know what was written in that letter, but it must have been confronting. It must have, it must have called to mind the sin that was exhibited because people repented. It was truth in love. And this is, friends, the second step. If we're going to maintain our sanity on the road when there's bumps and storming coming our way. We need to clarify the perspective that we have in deep love as well. We need to share our perspective, our own mistakes, and clarify our expectations where things went wrong. But all of this is done with the lens of how can we remain relational even though we are enduring negative emotions. As we connect with others, When we are in the midst of a negative emotion, we show them what it is like us to act under stress or negative emotion. We're not going to get it right all the time, but we are displaying what it's like to endure storming and follow through on the other side better off. People see rather than just hear what we do, what, what we say, they see what we do. When we see someone doing something, that becomes like a tape in our mind. We capture and replay when it comes to our turn. What is it like us to act when we're angry, fearful, disgusted? Someone has to show us the way. So we give a different perspective to the situation or perspective of how we can act in these situations only after we've validated our emotions and other people's emotions. Susie uh, does some uh, uh, coaching of people in the business world, and, and she told me a story just about a couple of weeks ago where uh, th- this particular person was on performance management. They, they wanted to take her out of a, of a big organization, and, and as a last resort, they called Susie uh, to meet with her uh, on, on a fortnightly basis and to help her through uh, some, some problems. And And Susie was debriefing with her a couple of weeks ago about a conflict that she had with her team. And the lady was just on top of the world saying, I I can't believe how I acted this time. You know, that's not really like me. I can't believe I was able to communicate with them in this way. And and, and as she went on and on and on, she said this amazing thing. She said that um, I channeled my inner Susie. I channeled my inner Susie. Susie said, to her, what, what does that mean? Like, what, what do you mean you channeled, uh, you know, the inner me? She said, I felt myself talking with the same mannerism and tone and, and disposition that you show me. We need somebody to show us how we act, not just tell us how we act. How do we act together when the going gets tough when there is conflict? in that place, and that's what Paul did. Then finally, he did one last thing to help deal with the bumps on the road. He says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him, because obviously they have either... um, excluded him from the fellowship or reprimanded him. It said, by the majority, it's sufficient for him. Now, what are we going to do? Instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, look at that next word, to reaffirm your love for him. To reaffirm your love for him. And the last thing is reaffirmation. Here, Paul finishes off by saying, let's do something different now. The reprimand worked. It proved sufficient to turn the offending man around. It's time now to make amends. Forgive, comfort, or encourage, and reaffirm love. This is a critical step in our own suspension system, relationally speaking. We need to recreate a relational future when we going it's tough. We, we, once we clarify our perspectives, we have the option of looking positively into the future or think there is no way to fix this, and we part ways. That's a sad predicament. Because you know what? Our past becomes a package in our future, no matter what you do. Your past will become, you know, educationalist will say that the past will become a part of your biography in the future. If you quit on relationships because you don't feel comfortable, not when there's something serious, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying you stick to a relationship if there is, uh, uh, if, if there is abuse or, or, or something significant that needs professional help. But I'm saying just before your ego is being scratched, Just because somebody hasn't washed the dishes. Just because somebody didn't, you know, didn't treat you like a princess. If we do that, it will come with us in the future. It makes it easier in the future to disregard our responsibilities. Clearly at times, and in some specific situation, there may be a need to purge unsafe relationships. But generally speaking, we can rebuild the relationship over time. So how can we rebuild that joy and tell someone that we are genuinely glad to be with them? We need to forgive because forgiveness is like medicine that heals the brokenhearted. We need to comfort and encourage, not to rub it in, but to comfort. And we understand you make a mistake, but this does not define you. Imagine that. Imagine talking to your son or to your daughter or to your spouse or to your friend and say, you know what, I understand you made a mistake. I also make mistakes all the time, but this mistake won't define you in my mind. You've done so much good over the years. I'm not going to only remember you making that mistake because that's what people think that they are doomed because they made a mistake. You need to stand in the gap for people and say, you know what, we all make mistakes and we all sin and we all stuff up. But hey, I'm here to champion your cause. I understand you're stuffed up. I understand your relational uh, dilemma. I understand the the background and the upbringing. It is okay. I am not going to judge you every single That's why it's written that love rubs out or forgets, or removes the memory of the wrong committed against us. We need to model what the future looks like to describe the future that we hope for and rebuild that very future. Do not let the incident change how you would have normally behaved. And that's honestly is the test of forgiveness. If you're treating somebody differently because they sinned against you or they annoyed you or they troubled you, you haven't really forgiven. It's how you relate to them after the incident that proves whether you really honestly have forgiven them. And believe it or not, God is bigger and stronger and mightier and he has your best interest at heart. You know, we're so afraid that people will take advantage of us if we're forgivers. Or if we don't count the sin against them, they might do it again. It's like I was so grumpy for a day or two just to, to, to say to Susie and myself, we don't want to do that again. It was manipulation. It was giving the cold shoulder so that, we don't, so that I don't have to, to deal with those negative emotions in the future. But God will honor your commitment to live selflessly, even if it hurts. And believe it or not, eventually God can turn situations around and conflict can lead to better experiences relationally. Let me finish off with one final thing. Back in 2005, we were launching a church, uh, a church plant uh, in the northern uh, uh, suburbs of Melbourne, and in one of the of the big launch times of 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 uh, having the core group uh, get together, uh, one of the people that were really solid with us turned against us, and uh, he 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 said some uh, some difficult things, and uh, and I remember I said you know you have every reason to say that. I understand your feelings. You've had some bad experiences. He had some bad experiences with his uncle in a particular church. But that didn't stop, stop it from hurting me. And indeed, the guy left. And for several months, we've never heard of him. We, we never saw him and his family. And all of a sudden, he came back. Would have been about four or five or six months later. I don't know. He came back, and he probably was just watching how I'm going to treat him again. Because he said some difficult things, hurtful things. And I remember, I didn't even think about it. You know when you do something and you think, what? I, don't even, I didn't even plan that. I remember, and don't, don't hold that against me. I hug the guy. You know, I, I'm an Egyptian. I hug people, all right? I hug men. I don't kiss men, uh, but I hug men. It's all right, you know. Uh, um. I hugged him, and and he he was a bit taken aback. And believe it or not, over the following few months and even years, this guy was our greatest supporter at church. He spent so much money, Susie would testify. we We were a small group of people. We didn't have a lot of money, but we had ambitious goals. And he spent so much money. He, he was responsible for all the media and in our church. He was responsible for the IT. In fact, he would take one day a week off to come to church and help us, not even expect it. He would give up his wages every single week. And he'd say to me, if only I could afford it, I'll be here every single day. And maybe, just maybe, God can turn relationships when we can treat people the way we would have treated them if they never sinned against us. Friends, today if you want to return to joy in any of your relationships there may be some difficult relationship that you need proper professional help. I'm not trying to give you in our five minute noodles type of solution. Please, if you need professional support, seek professional support. But begin In the simple things, to validate feelings. Your feelings and other people's feelings. To clarify facts. that Give another perspective to the situation. And rebuild the future. Reaffirm people. Encourage and forgive. Treat them as if they've done nothing wrong to you. You know what? Some of you sitting here today have been treating people slightly different. Because some six months ago, They've said something that upset you. You know what? You've said lots of things that upset Jesus. And he never mistreated you. Imagine if you could bless them today. Imagine if you could bless them this week. Imagine if you could treat them the way you would often have done. Maybe he will change things around.